and welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for June 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. Uh, I am celebrating the win, first ever Stanley Cup win for the Washington Capitals. Very exciting in our household, our town, our metro area, and so forth. Uh, my guest today is actually from the other Washington, Washington State. She is Leslie Galmore of the University of Washington. She has been the longtime women's soccer coach there. She is also the president this year of United Soccer Coaches, the great coaching alliance organization, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you, you know them because they put on the big convention every year in January. Uh, the organization formerly known as NSCAA. There's a little bit of irony in this week's conversation um, in the sense that I taught with Leslie on, I think, Wednesday or Tuesday. I talked with her a couple of days ago, and it was before w- one of her most famous players, well, probably her most famous player, um, who has passed through her college program, one Hope Solo, was in the news a good bit. Uh, she castigated the media for not adequately reporting on her the dismissal of charges in a domestic violence case that's been going on for four years, and along in along those lines, referred to statements that were supposedly passed out to media uh, at the time. The reporters I've talked to have not seen those statements or had not seen them before she publicized them this week. I don't know who she sent them to. I, maybe she sent them to, you know, all the TV networks. Maybe she sent them to ESPN and Fox um, Sports and so forth. And I, I just don't know. Um, but the journalists I know and I've talked with did not receive those statements. Um, then she popped up again. Do, she did interviews with CNN and the Associated Press and said, well, it was reported that she said that she thinks the U.S. should not be awarded the 2026 World Cup. Those weren't her exact words. At the same time, I have a hard time saying the headline is unfair. And she said that it should go to a more deserving country. And she pointed out that Morocco, which is not known for its women's soccer, not known for pay equity and... I don't know if anyone has investigated the other issues that she has with U.S. soccer. Morocco might fall short on all those counts as well. So, in a sense, perhaps she could argue for none of the above or some other place. I don't know. It, it's I have not done a study of the 200-some national football associations to see which ones are transparent and as she puts it, abide by federal law. That That's an interesting one to me because in some cases there are things that U.S. soccer does not do, uh, like solidarity payments, because they think that it would violate federal law. And they say, well, look, federal law trumps whatever we get from you know, FIFA and so forth, and we can't violate federal law even if you know FIFA wants us to. Um, but I, to some extent, there are legitimate points that she brings up. And, of course, the, the biggest thing hanging over U.S. soccer right now is that it's really bad timing 
to have audited financial statements that are so late. And they really are. And bear in mind, the, the election was nearly four months ago at this point. And it came up. I mean, in the floor of the National Council meeting, uh, Sunil Gulati, the outgoing president, said, oh, yeah, and the, the financial statements will be out shortly, right? And some guy in the back sort of went, uh, yeah, soon. We're, we're, yeah, it should, should be soon. I checked in with U.S. Soccer a short time ago, and they say it's they're waiting on the auditor. So, we either have a really messy uh, budget or really messy financial report to deal with, or we have a really slow auditor. I have no idea. It'd be nice to get an answer to that fairly soon. It'd be nice if they could just bring it. Because in it, vacuums tend to be filled. And vacuums can be filled with conspiracy theories in this case. And a lot of people seem to think that, well, the conspiracy theory in this case was they took the Copa America Centenario and lined somebody's pockets with it. I doubt it's something that simple. But the longer that it drags on, the more people wonder. And uh, again, it... Perhaps it's just that the auditor is really, really slow and U.S. soccer should be in the market for a new one. Or perhaps the, the records were really messy and perhaps that's something U.S. soccer needs to address. They can't let this happen again. I'm not sure what the steps are. I don't, I don't know how auditing really works. I don't. Th that's sort of above my pay grade, but it's fairly obvious that this is just not a situation that should repeat itself. I started to work on a story yesterday about all the things Solo has said this week and once again sent in a series of questions. I asked, well, to whom did you send the statement that your lawyer made about the dismissal? You know, um, because it wasn't me, it wasn't a few other journalists that I know. Who, who, Where did you send it? And I also asked, as I have asked many times, when you say equal pay, for men and women. You say no separate contracts, just make it equal. All right. Do you want to cut out the salaries that some of your teammates really want to keep? Because that's the bottom line is that the women soccer players have asked to have steady salaries. And that's understandable. It's especially understandable for people who don't have the outside income that Hope Solo has. That may sound harsh, but that is, that's the truth. If you're Hope Solo or Alex Morgan or someone like that who has a ton of endorsement money or book sales or something like that, some other source of income, then it's okay to risk, risk a little bit. If you're someone else and you're relying on this salary because otherwise the only money you're making is whatever your, NW, is, you know, your money from your NWSL team, which as we all know isn't much, then you're really risking a lot. And suppose, now it, it may seem unlikely, but it's come close to happening before, suppose the U.S. women don't qualify for the World Cup. What then? Take away all that bonus money. And you've taken away all the salaries. And then you're talking about a lot of players who didn't make much money. So the, equity is the goal, but we really have to talk about what that means. And with the U.S. national team... We're essentially talking about a second job for a lot of people, at least for, for the men's team, it's a second job. 
For the women's team, it's kind of a primary job. So we have to figure that out. Maybe women should be paid more by the Federation. In a sense, if you add in the NWSL subsidies in a given year, they might be. But it it's disappointing to see that we're still talking as if these discussions have never ta- taken place. It's disappointing to see people repeating rhetoric where we need more details and they just refuse to give them it. Because, you know, once again, my set of questions went unanswered. If I get answers, I'll let you know. Maybe I'll post some Ranting Soccer Dad. So it was an interesting coincidence that all that happened in the 48 to 72 hours after I spoke with Leslie Gallimore. Uh, we did not talk much about Hot Solo here, except that there is a bit about something that came up in her candidacy, which was interesting, which was the, we might call the Hope Solo pathway, which is for people who don't have unlimited financial means, people who may need some financial help to be able to play at an elite level that gets them noticed by college scouts. And I asked Leslie Galmore if she thought a player like Hope Solo would have the chance to do what Hope Solo has done if she were coming out today. And you'll see that she's not optimistic. So this week's interview is a good one. We talk about all sorts of recruiting issues, what it means to have all these different elite leagues and how that affects college recruiting and player pathways. Can a player like Coach Solo make it to the big time in this day and age? We'll find out. Here's Leslie Gallimore. My guest today is coach at the University of Washington, where she's been for a very long time, and she is also the president now, right? I get I sometimes get president and CEO confused, but of United Soccer Coaches. President is correct, right? Correct. We will go with president. We'll go with president. That sounds good. Uh, she is Leslie Gallimore, and uh, very pleased to have you joining us today. Appreciate it, Bo. All right. So the, the main question that I have for you is about the Elite League shakeup and how um, maybe, let's say 20 years ago, the, the typical player would play for a U.S. youth soccer league, generally local. They might play the occasional showcase outside of that, and then they may also do ODP, uh, through which they would be identified as prospects. Um, for the national team was the focus of it, but they would be identified for uh, colleges and professional clubs as, as well. Now we have the Development Academy. We have the ECNL. We have various U.S. club soccer leagues that claim to be a step ahead of the local U.S. youth soccer leagues. The local U.S. youth soccer leagues might not agree. So has your job gotten really difficult with all this going on? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's an interesting question, Bo. Clearly, there's been an evolution, and, and that's not unexpected. You would expect the game to evolve. You would expect one in a capitalist society for there to be competition. <laughs> and I think in all youth sports, they've definitely become, um, you know, they've become a, a, a financial uh, resource for people uh, with full-time coaches, et cetera. U.S. soccer has 
taken, uh, you know, youth soccer by the helm a little bit on the girls' side now by adding a development academy uh, a few years after the boys added one, which is giving them a little bit more control of the product, so to speak, as far as uh, what they mandate. And so that's that's not unexpected either. From a college coach's standpoint, you – You've got it pegged as far as what the evolution, where it's, where it kind of started or where it was 20 years ago. And I've been in college coaching for close to 32 years now and 25 here at the University of Washington. And in that time, it, it's, it's all become a lot more complicated. Uh, trying to find kids, trying to track kids, you know, trying to, you know, find out where they currently are, where they're going next year. And so it, it has made it more difficult, but I would also say that you know, most Division One college programs, and, and most college programs for that matter, uh, regardless of level, have uh, more resources than we had 20 years ago. You know, we have director of office, mm. we have more full-time paid assistant coaches, so we've got more people to get out there and beat the bushes and, and more resources ourselves to try to uh, evaluate the kids as much as possible. So that's not, you know, it, it's it's nature, so to speak. Um you know, the issue becomes for the players as far as what's best for them and what choices they have, you know, where they're finding themselves playing and, and for what reasons, I guess, is, is the big thing. Like, what, why are, why are kids on certain teams and how have they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? Uh, is it the best situation for them to be evaluated for the potential of national teams, for the potential of college, uh, college roster spots, college scholarships, and, you know, is it, it does it make the most sense for their families? I think that's the part that's been, uh, you know, exploded into something that I could have never foreseen 20 years ago happening, and I don't know that it's great. Right. So where, where are you looking most uh, for players, or uh, how do players arrive on, on your radar? Are you looking – First at Development Academy, uh, then ECNL, or um, how's if if you were to come in with a fresh, uh, if you were to come in fresh right now, where would be the first couple places you look? Yeah, we we look all over the place. We don't um, we don't really prioritize where we where we go first. Certainly, uh, players that have been identified through uh, youth national team training centers, through their states that, that have uh, markets. For that, um, you're certainly someone's doing a little bit of the work for you by by identifying those kids at a young age and having them go through the the development, the the training center market into the U14 pool, et cetera. Uh, so you know that's that's a fairly easy place to look for kids that have already been hand selected by another entity. Is that where all the best kids are? Absolutely not. Is it the first place we go? Like I said, we don't really have a priority on where we look first. Uh, you mentioned earlier that. You know, USYS teams, club teams would have an argument that U.S. club soccer, you know, what level is better. That 100% depends on where you are, what teams you're looking at, who coaches them, how their how their club is run. Uh, because we found plenty of kids in both uh, in both environments that are outstanding players. And you know, then again, you know, they all feel like, it, do we have to be in the ECNL? Do we have to be a DA club for our kids to have an opportunity? And I keep telling them that as long as they're running their organizations the right way, they absolutely do not have to be. But if they feel as though it would overall benefit their club, you know, and they have a specific reason as to how it would benefit them, then, you know, then that's up to them to try to get that status. I, I just don't see where individual players that you're looking at for college programs um, have to come from one place or another. And 
Uh, and so for us, there isn't a priority. We look we look all over the place. That's how they arrive on our campus, that we kind of beat the bushes at all levels to, to try to see which players fit and suit our needs and which kids are in a competitive enough environment and which kids maybe – have are are more self-made and those are sometimes the best players that come from a remote area that have really worked hard to get themselves in a place where they've improved on their own they've they've been training in their backyard with their dad they uh they drive you know however far to get on a team where they can it doesn't even have to be an ecnl or a da team maybe it's a club team that's really invested in this kid and helped them out financially to get them where they need to go um based on their ability and based on you know, their their lack of resources maybe. So they're everywhere. Um, and, you know, I always tell players that you control you. And whatever environment you're in, if you're talented enough, someone will find you. So if you go on any discussion forum that involves youth soccer, you will mm-hmm. find parents screaming at each other about whether the DA is better than the ECNL or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Is that a situation where they should just, chill and say, <laughs> look, you can't make a blanket statement one way or the other, and maybe the best club for you is neither? Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that, that I, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a catch-22 because I, I do think people want to talk about crazy parents all the time, and, uh, and, and it's not necessarily the parent's fault. If you're someone sitting here with a kid who is passionate about soccer, they want to play, uh, you've been, you know, encouraging and supportive and investing in their youth soccer career. And it's clearly something that they have a passion for, that they want to continue past being a youth player, uh, whether it be college as the end game, whether it be, um, you know, looking at youth national teams and trying to make the national team, which is obviously a small percentage of kids, but there's a lot more opportunity now for those kids as youth players to, to be involved. There's more programming, there's bigger numbers, et cetera, that are getting an opportunity. Um, but I think we do a poor job in this country of educating the parents, and part of that is that I, I do believe people in soccer a lot of times don't know what we're educating them about and or we are kind of self-centric on whatever level we're coming from, espousing that as being the best level. So, it's a, it's, again, it's a competition thing as opposed to stepping outside of what you're in and looking at the player and finding out what's best for them. So parent engagement and parent education is needs to be better. I think parents would chill out if they had a better understanding of what they were looking at. A lot of these parents aren't athletes themselves, weren't athletes, didn't play soccer, don't have other kids that have gone through youth sports. And then they, it becomes the big swirl of they're all listening to each other. And that's not necessarily ever a great thing when the misinformed are informing. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we need to do a better job of, of helping the parents navigate. Yeah, it, it is difficult because they're, you know, I, I, parents all the time who say oh oh well you know i can go tell that you know this club's training is better than so-and-so else's club and i often think on on what are you basing that (laughs) we don't we don't know i mean mean, it'd be like uh, me trying to commentate on uh, a grandmaster chess match i mean uh i don't know why he moved the knight to b5 um you know, there may be a good reason, there might not. And so, um, given that, I mean, would it help if there were, and this is something I'm trying to find out from U.S. soccer, uh, would it help if there were a set of coherent standards uh, that where that clubs have to meet? And so I know there's some organizations that have done that. U.S. Club did that at one point. Um, 
and believe in SCAA, former, you know, now, now, you know, your organization, United Soccer Coaches, had club standards as, as well. Would, would it help us if that were codified nationally to say, hey, look, this club meets such and such standard on this count or this, this standard on this? Would that help a little bit? Um, that might be a way to go. I, I think you're, you know, it's like anything in this country, uh, standardizing things are, it sounds good in theory, but it, at the same time, we're, we're such a big nation. We geographically, uh, economically, we, there, it's just this, it's this big conundrum of how to make, uh, how to make soccer work in this country to, to the, to the best of its ability, so to speak. And, um, and when you start talking about locations and, and standardization, again, it sounds good in theory, but how, how can you, how can you do that, um, when everyone's circumstances may be a little bit different? So, um, I, I don't know if you want to, if you have an example of a standard that you can come up with, I could maybe give you a better answer, but, um, I think standardizing becomes, it becomes difficult. You know, if you're, if you're talking about the birth year thing alone, um, where U.S. soccer came out and said this is what's going to happen, there was a lot of belly aching about that, and for good reason, because kids, you know, youth players play and their birth year separates them from perhaps their school age class or people they have been playing with and it broke teams up. And then there was a combination of birth years. And so, you know, what what benefit has that has that had? And, and is it too soon to tell if it was the right thing to do or not the right thing to do? When you talk about coaching standards, uh, that's a that's a whole nother topic we could go on about for days and what about the ability of players is it simply that you can afford to be on this team that all of a sudden you're considered an elite national league or a development academy player or is there a playing standard that has to be met before a kid can can join a team i mean everyone has kind of their individual tryouts but what are people really looking for uh in these players so um that they again they can afford it they're actually talented enough to be there at that age and 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 that their technical ability or their tactical iq is um, on par or above what they should be for a 12-year-old or 13-year-old. Um, how, how are we judging? And so I think all those things are really, really interesting questions and ones that, you know, whether they'll ever, ever be so solved completely in this country is yet to be seen, but are we working towards a common, um, sort of a common goal, if you will? I could and certainly have in the past gone on long, long rants about the uh, birth year initiative, which uh, was yep. – uh yeah which which was yeah, uh, has I, finally I re- that one up then. <laughs> well it it's funny that I was you know there was someone at US soccer who once insisted that I I was only concerned about my own kid and it was sort of refreshing to go to Orlando for the US soccer annual general meeting and find that no everybody is still mad about it and it's reached the board level at last too late but it has reached it. But I, I did want to hit back on something you mentioned, which was the idea that you know, um, of sort of paying your way into uh, elite competition. And there is, um, I forget who said it, but there was a good comment I, I came across recently that said it's a real shame that in this country uh, you're judged as an elite player simply by traveling the most. Um and and that is that that tends to be how a lot of people gauge whether or not a club is playing at a serious level of how much they travel and of course travel costs a substantial amount of money so um have we reached a point now um in which the travel of travel soccer has just gotten too oppressive and can and can kids be seen by coaches like you without 
you know, without hopping on an airplane. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it, I, I think, you know, the, the addition of the, the Development Academy, ECNL, there was obviously travel became, and then when the league regionalized and it grew, uh, the travel became more significant within the region, even how many times the kids hop on a plane or go on long rides to, you know, from Seattle to Portland or on a plane from Northern California to Seattle. Uh, and then the development academy, obviously there's travel involved and the parents that sit in my office and talk, um, from both sides, having been in ECNL and now being in the DA, I think that's the entire thing that's just has them perplexed is where, <laughs> You know, where's the, where's the benefit to any of this? Are they, you know, especially when the competition isn't great? Like, so, you know, if they're flying to Northern California and beating a team seven or eight to nothing, what is that doing for these kids when they could have stayed home and played one of the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, a PAC Northwest team or an Eastside FC team that are USYS teams that are very, very competitive and, and maybe, you know, come out losing or with a score that was tighter than that. So, I think that's the thing parents are looking at and saying, where is the bang for my buck in this? And is the coaching so great that uh, that my kid is benefiting? And is it just the status of being the DA that's going to get them seen by colleges? And maybe because they're traveling, coaches outside of their area are going to see them more often, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it, 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 a lot of it comes back to if you're, if, if you're a good enough player and you work hard enough to um, – be in a club that's going to advocate for you and put you in a position to to get recruited and speak on your behalf and call coaches for you and, and help you be proactive in your own recruitment and understand what that means. Uh, I, I I I definitely am a believer that it can happen for you. I don't see the need for parents to be investing fifteen, you know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year in their their kids' youth soccer. It's just. It, it, <laughs> It's crazy. Then the, then the scholarship becomes even more important because they've blown their <laughs> blown their bank on a, on their youth career, and it leaves a lot of you know a lot of kids without options other than asking for the boat when it comes to to scholarships, which is can be really unrealistic at times. Or they end up somewhere where maybe it wouldn't have been the place they wanted to be, but because the money was better, they had to, had to go there. Um, it just it, it puts a lot of different strains on the the student athlete or on the the recruit the youth player. Yeah, I've heard a couple of different uh, parental takes on it, and of course, they're I think these would be relatively privileged parental takes. One is that, um, yeah, go where you get the most scholarship money, and the other, the the other is, hey, I know that my kid's not going to get a full ride because those are relatively rare because you're limited to is it thirteen or fourteen scholarships now in women's? Uh, fourteen in women's, nine point nine men's. 9.9 on men's, right. So there are a lot of the yeah. scholarships that are given are not full, and a lot of parents realize right. that, and they say, well, but I'm actually doing this so my kid will get into a school. I mean, you know, that's the yeah. good way to get into an Ivy League school um, is, right. to, is to be an athlete. But I did want to get back to the sort of the less affluent uh, families, and, of course, you coached uh, one of the most famous women's soccer players in history, and that's Hope mm-hmm. Solo. Uh, and yep. she did not come. You know, she has spoken quite, spoken and written and published quite often about not coming from an affluent family and having and having to take a pathway through, you know, getting financial help to go to ODP. Mm-hmm. Would the Hope Solo pathway 
be more difficult today than it was in, when she was a high school senior? Yes, it would be. Um, mm. You know, her background, um, her means, her – but I, I also – I think Hope's a great example of the fact that it, it was, I wouldn't say easy, but um, it was clear from the people that were around her that were uh, advocates for Hope in eastern Washington in the Tri-Cities in Richland that she was special. And for a special player mm-hmm. like her, um, to have even a couple of adults and coaches and people around her, either soccer coaches or basketball coaches or other sports that she played, that um, they would they were going to do anything they could to get her where she needed to go and put her in front of people and and so she had that kind of support system. It wasn't even just necessarily financial; it was more um, logistical, getting her places, making sure that she was seen by people. Um, so mm-hmm. for for a player of her age to be the cream of the crop, I mean, you know, anyone in their right mind would have been like, okay, we have to make sure that this kid gets where she's going. Um, I think nowadays even it, it, it would be difficult in the sense that once they could get her in front of coaches and, and help her be seen and put her in an environment where she was improving, um, it would have been a way bigger burden on some of the people that were scholarshipping her, some of the people that were helping her, uh, the travel alone from eastern Washington just to Seattle, then to get out of Seattle to go other places, you know, how school would have gone down for her, the amount of school that kids are missing these days. I don't know how that would have played in for her. Um, so, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, if, if everyone started telling her that you have to do X, Y, and Z to make it, would her family have looked at it and said, like, this just, it's not going to fly? Or, you know, if, if people, individual people didn't step up and say, hey, we can help you out. Like, I, I know that, that clubs, um, do scholarship kids. I, I know a lot of clubs that have foundations that are starting to make sure that there's extra money for players, uh, without the means to be able to participate. But the bottom line is that someone is paying, and and, and that's also unfair. Just because you can afford it, <laughs> why should it be so much? Are now the kids that can't afford it, um, are they being subsidized by the ones that can't? And, and and what what is this price actually that we're putting on um, on youth sports? And and is it really you know is it really driving things the right direction? Um, so I think in this day and age, it would be it would be harder for her but way more difficult for the player just beneath Hope, um, who maybe develops later, somebody doesn't see them as being so special that they need to put them in front of someone or help them get where they're going. Um, And I think those are all the kids that we're missing out on, you know, all the states and cities and areas of the country that don't have regional market training centers, that don't have ECNL teams. There's a lot of states that have no ECNL, no DA, um, no market training, and they're, they're playing USYS, and a lot of them are playing at a decent level, um, but just don't have the opportunities. I, I call them, you know, area code or zip code poor, and just because of the place they live, and this is from a coaching standpoint, too. There are a lot of coaches that don't get opportunities because they're coaching at the highest level they can where they are, but um, that's all they have, and so there's no opportunity for them to advance as coaches or get better training or um, be admitted to a license or a diploma or, um, you know, receive coaching education um, on a, you know, more consistent basis that helps them become better at their craft. So it's a little bit of a, a bad cycle. Then there is one form of usually free um, soccer that's out there, and that's um, high school soccer, and I I think looking at other sports and you know having I grew up in 
uh, the college town of Athens, Georgia, and we mm-hmm. had there was a a player in 1979, well before the internet was a thing, uh, who was known as the best high school football player in the country, playing at a mm-hmm. tiny high school in Georgia, and that's it. There was no travel football. There was no you know, there's no other way to compare him, but enough people had seen this person, and that person went on to have perhaps the best college football career in history. It's it's Herschel Walker. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in soccer, because we don't pay as much attention to high school soccer, and, and I've talked with college coaches who told me no, they don't. We don't. We never really look at high school soccer. <laughs> is is, is is that pathway gone? Or, or are you going to tell me that you do look at high school soccer? Uh, I encourage kids that want to play high school soccer to continue playing high school soccer. And we have quite a few players on our current roster and uh, incoming kids that play on ECNL teams that have played on DA that have gone back from playing on DA to wanting to go back to ECNL because they like their high school team quite a bit. And, um, and so I've never, I, you know, this is to each his own. I've, I've never told a kid do not play high school soccer, nor will I ever. Um, you know, the socialization and the ability for, for players to, you know, student athletes and, and high school age kids to be around their peers, to be around the kids they've grown up with, and to take on different leadership roles. And high school sports are awesome. I mean, there's something really, really fun about them. Most kids won't play high school sports if, um, the level is so poor they don't like it, if the coaching is poor and they don't like it, if, they just don't enjoy it they, or if it's dangerous and it's, it's not helping them. Um, but I've always let it be their choice. There are plenty of kids that will tell you if they had their choice, they would, they love playing high school soccer. I ask them, it's the first thing I say, do you like it? Yes. Then do it. If you don't like it or you feel like it's hurting you or not helping you get better or it's a, a bad environment for you, then that's your choice too, like with anything. But I think we take the choice out of the kid's hands on a lot of levels way too often. And um, even when it comes to, trying to support and help them navigate where they should play their select or club soccer is um, I really am curious as to how much input the kids have <laughs> as opposed to the adults yeah. in their life. Um, that would be, you know, I, I try to ask them, what do you like? What do you enjoy? You know, I don't feel like changing teams. I've had plenty of situations where kids have made youth national team pools where they've been a little bit pressured, you know, this isn't a great environment for you. You should play in this environment. And they look at me and say, but I love my club team. They've helped me get here. I've developed through this group. And I'm like, <laughs> stay with that group. It, that's your choice. If you, you know, you got, you're this good for a reason. And if it's because of the environment you've been in, why would you want to change that? Um, so, you know, I, I, I think you run up against that kind of thing all the time. And um, I think high school sports for a lot of, I, I encourage kids to play other sports in high school if they can find a way to fit it in. I've got a couple of kids that continue to play high school basketball, which I think helps them cross train and some of my best defensive type players have been kids that have played basketball all the way through high school or at least a portion of it. Uh, you know, track and field is another one that we've had some kids that have really excelled and enjoyed and love competing and having success outside the realm of soccer just to mix it up a little bit and not be so focused at 15, 16, and 17 and doing the same thing all the time. I don't see an issue with it. Okay, and it's, you actually led into the the last question I was going to ask you, which was about specialization, and I did a piece recently and talked with Miriam Hickey at the at, of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy, and she says, "Oh yes, I remember being in the Netherlands, and you know, handball and basketball—they're great." And 
And so I asked about letting a cat development academy players play that and well the they could but they have to do so much soccer stuff that really it seemed like they were limited to either swimming in the morning before school or <laughs> perhaps they could run the occasional track meet since they're in shape already. <laughs> yeah, so, they, they, they're, um, they're, a, a select player's so, uh, soccer calendar does not allow them much time to do anything else. Uh, the, the, the scheduling strain on families and kids and youth sports, not just soccer, is uh, it makes it very, very difficult for them to have things that they do outside based on the time demands alone. And then I'll say, in, in U.S. soccer and the the develop, and these are all choices people make. They know what it is up front, and if they make that choice, then they've made that choice. One of the things that I've heard from DA parents is uh, this sort of mandatory break and how they feel like, you know, they could just hear their money flying out the window. <laughs> the kids haven't played for six weeks or seven weeks. It's like, is you know, where, where's this money going towards if they have this big of a break? And the break is built in for them to be able to rest, to, to recover, so that they're they're not at risk for injury. And and so you know, it's it's so you're never going to please everybody. And it's just the culture that we've created that it's go go go. And um, you know, if we're paying for it, we should be doing something, and we need to be getting better and competing. And uh, and again, I think uh, part of that is again parent engagement and education to to help them understand why, and then. Once they get used to these breaks, is what else could we be doing? Either cross training in another sport, or, or at least um, developing the whole person a little bit more, where kids are involved in things outside of just sports. I spoke with uh, Brandy Chastain for the story I was I was writing, and uh, she coaches in the development academy, and I mm-hmm. and she said she was so inspired by our conversation, she was thinking of having her her kids play basketball that night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. So who knows? Um, so I I lied and said the previous one was my last question. Let's make this the last question. Um, okay. If you had all-encompassing power to change youth soccer to, um, you know, for the benefit of, well, I mean, of course, you're looking at the top, you know, percent of them. I mean, uh, when you talk about high school soccer, I think about, you know, my area where, and I actually just saw um, my son's high school uh, girls soccer team uh, win its state quarterfinal game yesterday, which was exciting. Um, mm-hmm. It's very difficult to make those teams. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, but even being cognizant, uh, you can apply it to either the top kind of five percent, you know, the players that you would look at as a college coach, or apply it more generally. If you had all-encompassing power over youth mm-hmm. soccer in the United States right now, mm-hmm. what would you change? Uh, I would change the fact that. I would change the mentality that uh, everyone is a little bit self-centric about it. You know, so you're asking me this question um, as I sit at my desk at my college job. And uh, for me, it would be to make sure that when you call something elite or you say it's developmental, that uh, that there is a standard of the player that is able to go through there and that it's it's accessible to everybody. So accessibility would be one and continuing to build that accessibility so that uh, kids of lower socioeconomic means have uh, accessibility to it. That would be one thing. The other would be, I, I talk about, you know, not from a college coach's standpoint, but as the president of an organization that represents 30,000 coaches, is for those coaches and their players uh, to all be equally represented. And not everyone's going to be a national team player. And we, we really get stuck on this being an All-American in college, being a national team player. And we really talk about a very, very small percentage of the people that, that play the game. 
how do we how do we represent everybody? How do we advocate for everybody? So we're not just building national team players and kids that um, you know maybe have the hopes of becoming one and 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 then giving false hope to the ones that have no chance, <laughs> um, but still taking their money. Uh, and, and that we create people that are fans of the game through playing for life based on their experience being positive. If I could change one thing, that would be it, is for everyone to stop thinking from sort of that perspective and think more about teaching the enjoyment of the game from a young age. And from that, the talented kids will rise to the top because their their talent allows them to, their passion for the game. And for the ones who talent, you know, tops out, that they still leave the game loving it for life and they either become coaches or fans for life of the sport. And those are the people that are good, that this country is going to ride, um, ride on for, for all of our success is that you need those people uh, to help make soccer the preeminent sport in this country. And if you don't have them and if you have people leaving the game and attrition uh, because people have negative experiences, then I think you're really killing the game. When you talk about development, it's not just developing players to be great players. It's developing um, a base of people that love the sport like they do all in the rest of the uh, in the rest of the world. Yeah, I often feel like in my household I'm developing two future rec coaches, and I feel yeah. like, well, that's that's great. I've done my part then. So, yeah, there's something there's right. something to be said for that. Well, great. Thanks so much, and um, I look forward to seeing you at the next convention, which is always a great occasion in U.S. soccer. Perfect. I'll see you in Chicago, Bo. Another funny coincidence since we were talking about Morocco in this. You know who has coached at Morocco as part of a sports exchange program? That's right. Leslie Galmore. As Stephen Wright said, it's a small world, but it wouldn't want to paint it. Probably won't have many podcasts during the World Cup. Might do one just before. Blog will still be running. RantingSoccerDad.com. Don't forget the Patreon page.